Today's episode is called A Monk's Guide to Life, featuring guest Pandit Dasa. In the 1980s, Pandit Dasa migrated to the United States from India with almost no money. After some years growing up in Los Angeles and a brief stint in Bulgaria, Pandit returned to India and lived in a monastery for six months. When his visa expired, Pandit returned to the US and spent the next 15 years in a monastery. He eventually left the monkhood and began sharing the lessons he learned with college students around the country. You were still young when your parents moved to America. What do you remember from that time in your life? <laughs> well, I mean, I remember sort of struggling to find my place in this culture because obviously it was very different. I didn't speak English. I don't know if I spoke it at all, minimal. So um, I was not very comfortable. I was shy, scared to speak to people because I was afraid I wouldn't know how to communicate. I was afraid that I wouldn't understand them. They wouldn't understand me. It was obviously, that was a little bit challenging. And of course, the parts of Los Angeles that I grew up in didn't have any other Asian kids. So I looked different. My food looked different. My religion was different. My language was different. So. I did kind of stick out for a little while. And so those were some of the challenging things that I underwent, which uh, I'm sure helped me grow in different ways. Can you share what, what it was like being raised by your parents? Like uh, just in general? What did they teach you about the person you are now and the struggles that you've had growing up and how that's helped you become who you are now? Well, see, my parents came over with not a lot of money and resources. So they did struggle quite a bit just to be able to put food on the table. There were a time when they really didn't have much money at all. Like there was times when they almost ran out of money altogether. They could barely even pay their rent. There were many times that were really scary for them. They, they shared all this with me later. I was really young, so I didn't feel it. They didn't let me feel it that sort of trauma or fear of not having money to pay rent or even buy food possibly. So I know that they went through a lot of sacrifices. I didn't feel those sacrifices. And I mean, I went through my own challenges as an only kid and a foreign country and immigrant, not a lot of Indian people in the, in the country at that time. So I know they worked really hard and, and they had to, they were working constantly. They were working literally seven days a week just to be able to put food on the table. So I kind of had to navigate this bicultural upbringing on my own quite a bit, simply because they were really busy working, making sure that they always had money to put food on the table and uh, pay the bills. I was speaking to a psychotherapist two days ago, and she's from New York, and she was saying that People who've gone through adversity, particularly in childhood, some of them can have increased resilience when they become older. Is that the case with you? Your resilience has increased as you've gotten older? I believe that is the case. I do. Yeah, I mean, resilience, I feel like one definition of it is just being able to bounce back from a difficult situation and to be able to take it take the difficult situation 
and understand that this will also pass and that it's making me stronger. So whenever I go through a difficult situation, because I've been through so many, I remind myself that every single one has helped me grow stronger. And even though I can't see how this one's gonna help me grow stronger, but I know it will, because that's just what it's supposed to do if you want it to. You could become grumpy, nasty, angry at the world, the universe, God, whatever. You can go that route too. Fortunately, I didn't go down that route. And I just said, well, I don't know what it's going to teach me. I don't like what I'm going through, but I'm going to wait it out to see what it does teach me. What was it within you that that chose to be more compassionate and less hostile about the world and your circumstance? Well, I think that actually, I started learning that when I became a monk, right? So in 1999, I was 27 years old. We'd already gone through a lot. We had tremendous success. My parents had became multimillionaires in Los Angeles, having nothing to multimillionaires. And then five or six years into that, they lost their entire business and we went completely broke again. And at that time, we ended up in post-communist Bulgaria in 1992, 1993. Trying, my dad was looking for new business opportunities. We packed up our bags, left Los Angeles for behind for good and moved to Bulgaria a place that had no internet, no, but no place on the planet had internet at that time. I didn't have any friends there. I didn't speak the language at all. It wasn't anything similar to English. And everything in the movie theaters was many years old that I'd seen already, because I don't think American movies were allowed during the communist regime. So I entered a country where I might as well have landed on the moon. <laughs> because I didn't, I couldn't even have a conversation. Imagine just not being able to, imagine go outside your door and you can't even have a conversation with a single person who doesn't understand you and you don't understand what you're saying, right? So having been through that and naturally I was, at that time, I remember there was anger inside and frustration. Why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? And I think that those are questions that we all ask ourselves when we go through a painful situation in life. That is the time I started to study and read the Bhagavad Gita. I don't know if you've heard of this text or not. It is a the primary spiritual text of India. It was a text that Gandhi always carried around with him and got tremendous inspiration from. Even Albert Einstein had read it and was amazed by it. Emerson Thoreau had read it and were very impressed by it. So from the East to the West, this text has helped people in many, many ways. And this text was it really helped me understand, for example, what was happening, why it was happening, and that really blaming my parents or blaming God or just blaming or the world isn't accomplishing anything. Because blame has never really accomplished anything in life other than more blame. And blame leads to frustration and anger, just a vicious cycle. You blame more and you get more angry than you get frustrated and you blame again. So I really learned that blame doesn't accomplish anything and so and that whatever is happening to me I sort of accepted like the idea of karma that whatever is happening to me is happening from something I did previously and and whatever is happening I have to learn to grow from it otherwise I'll end up repeating the same cycle if I don't break that cycle it'll happen again to me it's really interesting because none of us chose our circumstance but we're just born into the circumstance that that we have and then as we get older 
we decide on what sort of path we want to take in life. Yeah. And, you know, it depends on what philosophies you look at in life and the world, different philosophies of life that are out there on the planet. You know, some would say that we did choose the path that we're born into. <laughs> Somehow or other, we existed and we chose in some strange capacity, in some strange way that we did choose. If we didn't choose it, then who chose it for us? How the heck did I end up having three meals a day and some people get one meal a day or no meals a day? Like who's deciding that kind of thing? If I haven't had a hand in it, then basically I'm a puppet, I'm a robot, I'm being controlled by someone else. Or destiny and fate are just so random that, geez, anything could happen at any time and nothing really matters at that point. Right or wrong, moral or immoral, who cares, right? Like if anything can happen at any time to anyone for no reason, then what does anything matter? I chose to believe that somehow I had a hand in it and that the best person to blame is myself, but not in a way to get depressed, but like, now what do I do? How do I learn from it? How do I grow from it? How, I, how do I improve from it? How do I not make the same mistakes and act out of anger and blame? So these are the things that I was learning from the Gita, and especially when 1999, when I started living in a monastery in Mumbai, these are the kinds of teachings I was learning from other monks. I thought I was going to be a monk or just live with them. I didn't think I was going to even be a monk when I went to Mumbai in India. I thought I would just be there as a visitor, as a guest. You know, you take like a, a retreat or something. So that was for me a retreat. But then I loved it so much. I ended up spending six months in India, learning and studying in a few different monasteries. And I came back to the monastery in New York City. There was a monastery there. Thought I'd spend another three or six months and that would be it. Ended up spending 15 years of my life living as a monk. Most of it in New York City. So you went from India as a monk and then to living in New York City. What was that experience like? <laughs> well, have you ever been to New York? <laughs> I was there right before the pandemic, so 2019 in December. Were you in the on the Lower East Side by any chance? Mostly around Broadway. Okay. So the Lower East Side is a place, that's where our monastery was. Our monastery was surrounded by nightclubs, bars, tattoo shops, pizza shops, bus stations, train station, full-blown chaos. Full-blown chaos. And so that's where I was in the middle of most of the time. So was it easy? No, it was challenging. But then again, that's where as a part of the duty of a monk was not just to meditate and become enlightened for yourself, but also to teach others. So I was doing a lot of programming on meditation and teaching students and others at Columbia University and New York University, the two local universities there. I mean, there's other universities as well. These are the bigger ones. I was teaching them mindfulness, meditation. I was teaching them Bhagavad Gita. I was teaching them vegetarian cooking classes. So I was just teaching a lot of things that students were really curious about. And I found a lot of fulfillment and satisfaction in being able to talk about these topics with students. And it was helping them so much because they were going through a lot of stress. Students, the academic pressures at those universities was tremendous, very incredibly competitive universities. And not just that, it's a big city. And a lot of students there weren't from big cities. So they were from smaller towns and not dropped in the middle of New York City, like chaos. And not just that, they're trying to, they're away from home and now they're trying to figure out who they want to be in life. So there was a lot going on. 
in the lives of students. And so I was just trying to help them with that. And that was an amazing experience. And I found that the more I taught, the more I learned myself. How much do these students resonate with more Eastern philosophies? Oh my gosh. I mean, I'm sure you're aware there's a whole trend now where folks in the West are looking to the East and folks in the East are looking to the West. (laughs) (laughs) People have always been looking to the West, but more than ever, I think now people are looking to the East. Just, you know, the whole idea of spiritual, but not religious. Maybe you've heard that term. And I think a lot of people are like that because I think the standard model of Western faith traditions that says that it's either this life or you go to hell or eternally or you know it's just like these kinds of things people i think students are kind of burnt out from like hey i don't want to go to hell and don't tell me that i'm going to hell (laughs) 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 because you don't know that uh, where i'm going and so i think it's just like that guilt and damnation type of a mood was just like people were kind of done with that i think they're done with that and just looking for a more open idea of meditation calming the mind being connected with nature around you having a loving relationship with others around you, even if they're different from you, of a different religion, different ethnic background, different skin color, different race, gender. It's okay. Look to the soul and serve and get to know one another. And so I, there was a lot of students with that mindset that were coming to me. And so I was just thrilled that I could be a source of support because they were looking for that. And I was just glad that I was able to do that. And, you know, I kind of became the talk of the campus. Like, hey, there's a monk on campus that teaches vegetarian cooking. Because <laughs> I would go in saffron colored robes and stuff. So, I, you know, you could see me walking around campus. You really couldn't miss me. How does the mind, thoughts, and emotions impact behavior? Mm. How do they not? <laughs> yes. How can the mind and thoughts and emotions not impact behavior? Because it starts with an idea, some, some thought. And if it's the thought of something negative and painful, that's going to affect your emotions. So the thought, you remember something from last week where someone said something to hurt us. And now that turns to an emotion. I'm, now I'm angry and irritable. That could lead to some kind of speech that may be some negative speech towards that individual. And if it was really bad enough, maybe I'm going to even do something to hurt them back. So the thought led to an emotion, led to some speech, and it could ultimately even lead to some behavior that it could be detrimental for us, for them, for our karma, for the relationship. So same thing happens with, you know, if somebody appreciates us and I remember that and I become happy and the happy emotions come up and now I want to do something good for someone else maybe. Maybe I want to call that person back and say, hey, thanks so much for appreciating what you what, what I did the other day. I, you made my day. Or you see someone else doing something good. You're like, hey, that's a wonderful job. Thanks for doing that. Thanks for helping with that. So it all leads to behavior. Mind, thoughts, emotions definitely affect our behavior. And of course, in terms of the negative thoughts, we do want to come to an enlightened state where we're not reacting because of our mind and thoughts and emotions. We do want to be able to come to a stage where we have control over, we're able to manage our mind and our thoughts and emotions and not be controlled by them, not react because of them. So even though we are being pushed by them to respond, we're able to just say like, okay, 
I'm not going to go ahead and respond. I'm not going to be a puppet of my thoughts. One of the things that I've learned from meditation is that it helps us become more aware of our thoughts and see it from a distance and seeing it not as us, but as just the thought. You don't have to interact with it. Yeah. I sort of like when I guide my meditations, I ask people to close their eyes and visualize their thoughts in their head the way they would look at fish inside of a fishbowl. I just like to observe, just like you're observing the different color fish swimming around. And just observe. Don't engage with them. Just observe. It's hard to do, especially if somebody like just insulted you. You're not going to be able to now just look at it from a distance. Ideally, you'd like to come to that point and we can try to come to that point. But at least we can not be reactive in that moment and then gradually try to distance ourselves. Usually it takes a little bit of time between the event before the, you know, when the event has happened, the more time goes by, the more you're able to distance yourself from it. In the moment, it's hard. But yeah, if we can learn to look at our thoughts and even understand how these thoughts are actually impacting me. Like, okay, let's say I start thinking of something painful that happened six months ago. And as soon as it enters my mind, if I'm aware, because sometimes the thought enters, it starts playing itself out and we're not even aware. Like we're going through the whole experience again. We're not aware enough to say, pause, stop, stop right here. We're not going to let the whole movie play out now. I can stop it in the first 10 seconds. So if we're aware enough, we can say, okay, stop, press the pause button right there. <laughs> and I'm not going to let this crazy movie play out because I know what happens. I get upset. I get depressed. I, and I start getting angry at that person again. So no need to relive and make ourselves go through all of that. Better just to see if we can pause it if possible. I think it was Stoic philosophy that, that says, are you suffering more in your mind or in real life? And in most cases, it's mostly in the mind. Yeah, I mean, our mind creates our reality. Whatever happens in the mind affects the body. So stress starts up here, and then it has an impact through the rest of the body. It affects the heart, it affects our immune system, it affects our reproductive system, it affects everything. It affects our digestion. So. The mind completely impacts the body. And yeah, most of our suffering is in the mind. So like if you're stuck in traffic and you're going to be late for your interview, yes, that's a difficult situation. How difficult you want it to be, it depends up, up to you in your mind. You can make a major story out of it and say, oh, if I don't make this, my career is over. I'm never going to get another opportunity again. What am I going to do with my life? My boyfriend or girlfriend will leave me and uh, I won't be able to pay my... Okay. We could go all the way there or say, actually, I may not make it. There's nothing I can do. Okay, let me just call them and say, I'm stuck in traffic and I really hope we can reschedule. Otherwise, there's a billion other opportunities out there and I'll pursue those. Boom, the moment you say that, you're like, okay, I can't get rid of traffic. I would if I could. I can't fly like Superman. I would if I could. I can't teleport myself. I would if I could, since I can't, let me just put on the radio and just chill. Focusing on what you can control, letting go of everything else. And that's the hard part. And I don't want to make it sound like that I'm able to do that all the time. I don't want to come across like that because I can't always do that. But I do tell myself that and I do try my best. But it is the only way to live. It's the only sane and peaceful way to live. Exactly. Exactly. It's definitely a difficult thing to do, particularly with the, the pandemic during 2020. A lot of people 
were worried about their own finances, what the, the future would be like, a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, totally. Tons of it. Tons of it. It still is, right? How do you deal with uncertainty? Well, I mean, I've already gone through so much uncertainty. And I guess that's part of being resilient. Like I've My whole life has been so, there's been so much uncertainty in my whole life. Moving around, having a lot, losing it, becoming a monk, leaving the monastic life. So, you know, you just got to take it the way as it comes. There's a really nice uh, phrase, message in the Bhagavad Gita that sa- it says that happiness and distress come and go like the summer and winter seasons. I love that. And one simply has to learn to tolerate them without being disturbed. It's like, you know that, okay, right now it's summer. I'm in Florida, so it's always warm here. But for most, a lot of people, you know winter is coming. A lot of people don't like winter, but you know it's coming, you prepare for it. You're not shocked that it shows up, because it happens every year. And you prepare for it. And so know that there's something difficult that's going to come into your life, and you're going to just deal with it. That's just it. You can't just always have a great life. Pain is supposed to come into our life. And it will. And when it does, you're like, oh, okay, here it is. It's been a while, but it was definitely a little overdue. But here we go. Here it is. And it's really uncomfortable this time. And this too shall pass. It's not a permanent thing. It's not sticking around eternally. This thing will pass. Like the pandemic will pass. Things pass. And so that's sort of how I deal with uncertainty is I just know that things come and things go. I do get anxious when they're here. I do want them to pass quickly, especially the difficult things, happy things. You want them to stay around as long as possible, but all happiness will stay around as long as it's supposed to. And all pain will stay around as long as it's supposed to. And there's not much anyone can do about it. It will go, both will come and go as and when they're supposed to. We have very little to say in that, but we could still have a big say over our mindset during all of those situations. I like that. Even when the good times are there, we can manage our mindset so we don't think ourselves better than others. Just because things are going great, I'm better than others. No, you're not. It's just a, it's just a summer season for you now. The winter's coming. And for someone else who's not going through a good time, no good time is gonna come. Just be grateful. For the difficult, for the good time that comes, just be grateful for that. And if a difficult moment's in your life, be grateful for that as well. Say, oh, this sucks, but it's going to teach me some more powerful lessons than the good times, actually. So just be grateful, whatever's happening. One of the things that we have now that's never existed before is social media. And it's caused people to have a lot of comparison, which has led to a lot of anxiety. What can Eastern philosophies teach us about comparison and and happiness gosh they really just say if you really want to be miserable if you really want to be sad depressed and miserable go ahead and start comparing your profile to someone else's comparing your life to someone else that is the secret formula for anxiety and depression (laughs) (laughs) so that's a simple formula if that's what you want go for it I don't know if it's necessarily Eastern philosophy, but this is kind of what I've learned from the monks that I've, I, I used to live with, because I'm not a monk anymore, is that it's okay to look at others who are more successful than us, to take inspiration from them, to learn from them, because they've gotten there because of hard work and whatever else, techniques they've used, 
So go ahead and look at them, but don't be bothered if their profile is more successful than yours. Say like, hey, how did they gain that success? Let me listen to them. Let me learn from them. We have two choices, either to be jealous and envious of them and be all bothered and lose sleep or learn from them. And we're human, so some jealousy will be there, no doubt. But let it be there, but continue to learn from them. So yeah, I'm jealous. Okay, I get, I am jealous. Yeah, I feel it. I feel it in my heart. I want that success. Well, now I want it. Let me learn from them. You can't get rid of the jealousy because we're human beings. Right? Like you see one dog's got a bigger bone and the other dog chases it to take it away. Right? All living beings have that in them. Jealousy. You can look at it and speak babies. You can see like if the one's got a better toy or more food, the other one's like, ah, I want it. You know, it's like, so it's just there. However, we can either let that jealousy control us or we can just say, I know you're there. You just chill for a little while. Let me learn from this person. Well, you can keep burning, but I'm not going to let this get out of control. I'm not going to now go ahead and like vilify this person because they're doing better than I am. I think it was Gabby Bernstein. She's a... Uh like a meditation expert in, in New York. And she says that there's, there's no limit to the amount of success that can exist in the world. So just because one person's successful doesn't mean you can't be. There's no shortage of success. There's no shortage of opportunities. There's no shortage of money. There's no shortage of any of these things. It's just, if we, I believe it's a combination of hard work, a little bit of luck for sure. Like you, sometimes people just get the right breaks. You're like, oh my God, look how they ended up on Oprah or something like that. You know, like, oh my God, how did they get there? Well, somehow it was, maybe that was their karma. What are you going to do? That's it. Great. You just keep working, plug away, focus on your own tasks, focus on your own goals and learn from them. That's what I do. I see people that are much more successful than me. I try to learn from them. See, what are they doing? Let me see how I can implement some of their techniques. It's great. It's, you got to free teacher right there on many levels you would be regarded as quite successful how would you define success success i think one way to define success is is if we have a healthy and balanced healthy and balanced mind emotional and physical health so healthy and balanced mental emotional and physical health and also healthy relationships because a lot of times people sacrifice their health physical and mental and emotional, and the relationship for money and position and fame, right? Just chasing the money, chasing the buck, chasing that dollar. You forget about your friends and family. They need you. You don't answer the call. You don't return their message. You don't show up to their birthdays. You don't celebrate their successes with them. You just out for it. And then when you want to celebrate, no one's around. You're celebrating by yourself, sitting at the bar or sitting in the yoga studio, whatever. And no one cares to answer your call because we haven't been there. So I feel like success means that we have a balanced life. That means that we are physically, mentally, emotionally healthy, and we have good loving relationships around us. For me, that is success. And if one of those is missing, then I would say that then it's not fully successful. Monks typically don't have money. In our society, if you have a lot of money, that, that's considered quite successful. There's multiple ways of defining success, as, as you've mentioned. Being able to spend more time with, with family and friends. Because then if you're just spending all that time just chasing money, 
then there's you can't really celebrate it with anyone at the end. Yeah, and if you can't celebrate with someone else, that's a very lonely situation. It is. That's painful. So yeah, I think、uh, we all need to find our own definition of success. But I think that if it doesn't include positive relationships around us, not just surrounding us, surrounding ourselves with our fans, people who just praise us. But our family and friends, people who actually just like us and want to be around us, whether we're successful or not. So I think if we don't have that support system, then what's the, what's really the meaning of life? Life is just boring and lonely at that point. I'm curious to know what do you think is the meaning of life? <laughs> the meaning of life. I mean, I think. Well, I only have another ten minutes, so I don't know if I want to spend the whole time on that. But the meaning of life. I think first is to understand what our purpose is. Like first, we understand who we are. Who are we? What are we meant to do here? And what's the best way we can serve others around us? So the meaning of life, I believe, is like it consists of those three things: understanding who we are, what we're supposed to do, and how do we serve others around us. And I think that if we keep that in mind, then. Even if we have certain other successes and failures, we can go back to that. Like, who am I really? What is my purpose? And how can I continue to serve? Because these are things we can always do, no matter what other ups and downs we go through in life, and whatever obstacles come up in, in our life. As we come towards the end of our episode, I have a few remaining questions that I'd like to ask. That I ask every guest: What does living healthier today? Mean to you? Living healthy today means that we, again, I'm going to use this word balance. That we are making sure we're taking care of our mind, body, and soul. That means eating the right foods, healthy foods that are healthy for our body and also healthy for the environment. So for me, that means a lot of plant-based foods. It means some kind of yoga, walking, exercise, whatever it is for the individual and the soul. Meaning that if we have a spiritual path or a religious path, that also incorporating that in a healthy way into our life, at the same time not being fanatic about it and judging others because of it, not thinking our、oh, mind is better than yours, like oh that's just getting so old. So taking care of our body, taking care of our mind and body, and also making sure that our soul is nourished. That is what I really feel means to like live healthy. The soul has to be nourished. The soul, I feel, is like the the root of the tree. When you water the root of the tree, the rest of the tree is watered, right? All the plants and leaves are automatically getting the water. So I think if our souls nourished, the rest of us will also be nourished. The rest of us will be nourished. I love that. You've come a long way from the time that you were eighteen to where you are now. What would you tell your eighteen-year-old self? Yeah. What would I tell my 18-year-old self? <laughs> Fasten your seatbelt. It's going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's like, if, if I saw my 18-year-old self, I think that's the first thing that would come out of my mouth is like, "Fasten your seatbelt," because it's about to get bumpy. But at least you're giving that person a heads up that it's going to get bumpy, and that the same thing I said earlier, actually that. And whatever bumps you come across, don't blame anyone else for it. And as your that bump throws you up into the air, think about the lessons you can learn from those bumps. Oh, I love that! I love that. 
you're going to be doing a lot of traveling from like 18 to where you are now. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, for sure. Few remaining things. Is there any last remaining things you would like to share? Well, one thing that we struggle with now is connection, physical connection with people because of the pandemic. So if we can't have that, then I would say that let's just check in with somebody that we haven't been in touch with for a while and see how they're doing and just talk with them and offer some encouragement and support. And you might be just amazed and surprised as to how much people appreciate that. So let's check because who knows, maybe someone's really struggling and maybe they feel like they have no one to turn to. And imagine you're the person that calls them to check in on them and just, you've just made their day and maybe helped them or in some, in a significant way. So let's see who we can get in touch with and just be there for them. Yeah. Communication's probably been utmost important during past year or so. Yeah, and, and I think the final thing that I would say is that really just try to find some time in your day to do some meditation, whether it's secular meditation or spiritual meditation. It's so healthy for the mind. I like to think of meditation as a way to close out the apps in the mind, right? That's like the name of one of my books, right? Close out the apps, how to be mindful at work and at home. So really learn to close out those apps. Your mind can be de-stressed, less cluttered, more focused, more productive, and just be more peaceful. So even if it doesn't have to be 10 to 15 minutes, it can be one to two minutes a few times a day. Do it for 60 seconds in the morning, 60 seconds in the afternoon, 60 seconds in the evening, and it could just be consisting of 10 breaths. Take 10 really deep breaths without planning anything else and take a moment to feel grateful for something. It could be as simple as that. Like a hiker leaving the summit of a mountain, Pandit is now able to enlighten audiences around the world with the life-changing wisdom he learned in the monastery. Share this podcast with one person who you think would benefit from it. Leave a rating and review of the Healthy Today podcast on Apple Podcasts. Our team includes assistants Tania and Akia Sadia, scriptwriter Brian Ariotto, and voiceover Yanni Harris. This episode was produced by Resonate Recordings. In tomorrow's final episode for Season 2, you will hear from Addison Brazil about his passion for men's mental health.